Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Today we speak with Rodney Hooper of RK Equity. They are a consultancy focused on lithium and also battery metals. Today they share with us their knowledge about things like clay, lithium, hard rock, brines, which are the best and why. We talk about hydroxide, carbonates and spodumene. What do they mean? Uh, We talk uh, also about the marketplace and get some tips as to what sorts of companies are most likely to succeed? Who are the big players? Um, what partnerships out there should we be looking for? And what are the integral investment clues uh, before that we should look at before we make our investments? So lots discussed. Enjoy the podcast. Rodney, how are you doing, sir? Good and you, Matt. Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Now you're calling us from uh, South Africa. How are things there? I am. I'm calling you from Cape Town. We're uh, midwinter, not midsummer like you, um, and uh, like everyone else, uh, trying to cope with COVID. And how how are you coping with COVID? What's happening? Uh, so for me personally, you know, I've always worked from home and then travelled. So uh, the travel, but of course, has uh, been impaired. But um, yeah, South Africa has. Uh, it's not often we rank fourth on the list, and we rank fourth, I think, in total cases in COVID. So. Um, trying to uh, you know trying to get that under control it's not good and there's a real kind of expense to that as well isn't it that's the kind of bit that people forget i mean so how's south africa coping yeah so uh, we've we've set aside quite uh, a large um uh, support funds but you know the balance sheet isn't that of the us and the uk uh, we recently got a loan i think of about 4.3 billion dollars from um, the imf but um we have some fairly tough measures in place here in South Africa. We've got curfews. We've got bans on alcohol and cigarette sales. So uh, it's been really difficult for uh, certain sectors. So I mean, that, that's I mean, you, that's quite serious curfews, etc. But but why the ban on alcohol and cigarettes? I mean, we've heard that a few places, but what's the logic that's been given to the public? So uh, the the cigarette ban, I think, was around respiratory. You know, believing it, you know, to be respiratory related. But uh, the interesting thing is that British American Tobacco, obviously losing sales, did its own uh, survey and and uh, came up with the numbers that about ninety five percent of smokers are still getting cigarettes just illegally. So they're not paying, you know, government uh, taxes aren't being paid on the sale, and then. The other issue, which I found really interesting, is they said because of the cost under the black market, which can be as much as I think four to five times the normal price, that people are sharing cigarettes, and then of course that poses a risk of passing on COVID. On the alcohol side, um, what we, what the hospitals were finding, particularly in the regional areas where they don't have big hospitals, is they were facing. Uh, an enormous increase in in uh, alcohol-related violence, et cetera, so that emergency uh, beds were being filled up with non-COVID-related patients, to the point that you know they were you know putting lives at risk. So they took the view to uh, ban alcohol sales. Again, we've been open, so it's not like they didn't have the stats. We were closed and then open, and now we're closed off again yeah i think there's a few places um obviously like we've just searched spain has, uh you know they've got a kind of 14-day quarantine for people coming back from spain to the uk because there's been an outbreak there melbourne in australia the same so and, and the states as well it's a whole whole other story 
Um, well, look, let, we're not here to talk about COVID. Uh, we're here to talk about lithium, something you know a lot about. So um, we had Howard uh, Klein on recently. He's your business partner. You guys focus entirely on the lithium story. So maybe give people a bit of background about you, Rodney Huber. You know, why why have you got the right to talk about lithium? So uh, it was an interesting one. Uh, you know, being South African, mining has always been part and parcel of, of our history. Uh, and I've uh, dealt in other areas in different shapes and forms. But a few years ago, I am... Um, had a look at the landscape. I actually did a, an in-depth thesis uh, for a family office on oil, um, which turned out to be successful at the time. If you remember, oil plummeted into the 20s back then. But I did uh, quite a lot of research around the threats and risks to the future demand for oil and came across lithium. Now, in South Africa, of course, everyone was hoping, you know, a lot of the companies were hoping that fuel cells would come through because that needs platinum. <laughs> But um, it was around the time that Elon Musk was emerging uh, and, uh, and the potential for specifically for electric vehicles was becoming apparent because the cost of uh, renewables was plummeting. So the potential to have a closed loop of you know, batteries and charging using clean energy was, was starting to form. And looking amongst the uh, energy vehicle battery metals, and I still do think there's some good prospects in others, but lithium is the irreplaceable element of the lithium-ion battery. Uh, and in terms of impact on size of market and shift going forward, you know, lithium is the most impacted of the EV battery metals. So for the last four years, I've literally seven days a week, 15 hours a day, just you know, gone down the lithium wormhole and never come out. It's a, it's a very nuanced industry and complicated. And um, I have spent that time uh, literally dedicated. We do cover the EV battery metal space, but lithium has, has dominated uh, our work. And um, we've worked with a lot of company and people, and we speak uh, to the to the lithium battery supply chain from the, you know, from Spodumen, you know, from the precursor providers right to the other end of the supply chain. So we chat to everyone and uh, have a fairly a good handle on uh, on everything that's happening across the space. Okay, so you're spending a lot, a lot of time uh, involved with lithium and you're, you provide analysis and do consultancy work for various companies. Okay, so you you are you are really involved with this so i want to start from the beginning though because there's quite a few people who you know made a bit of money in lithium about two three years ago and then it's kind of the price has dropped off no one's really interested in lithium at the moment um but they're starting to look at it the ev thematic is is is, is starting to to grow and it's not growing the pace people thought it might but nevertheless lithium sort of coming back on the agenda. So if you don't mind, we're going to go back to basics. So let's start with uh, terminology, first of all. So we you mentioned one of the things that spodumene. There's also um, hydroxide and carbonate. So maybe you can describe what each of those things is. Okay, sure. Uh, just one other thing, you know, to point out is, is that people must understand is that the lithium industry didn't start and evolve. It's been going since the 50s yep. in the States. It didn't start with the basis of supplying electric vehicles. 
lithium started out, you know, as an example, and one of the places that you can, you know, uh, produce lithium is in the, you know, out of brine, in the South American brines, uh, is it was a byproduct of the potassium industry. So one of the things that people need to understand, and it's something that we'll discuss as we, we move forward from here, is the quality of lithium that is required to supply the industrial market, which is the history of lithium, which is grease, glass, ceramics, etc., is not the same as what is required in the battery industry. The, the purity levels are, are completely separate products. So when people think of, of lithium as a commodity, it, it, it might have some merit in looking at in that shape and form for the historical industrial applications. But for the battery industry, it's very much a specialty chemical. Beautiful. So in fact, that's really important to understand. So there, there, it's been around a long time. I appreciate that. And there are other uses which, you know, probably make up the bulk of the, the market at the moment. But investors are getting excited for companies based on what they're hearing around the battery uh, the, the the battery thematic, the EV thematic, what what automotives are going to be doing going forward. I appreciate there are these, and, and we'll we'll cover off all of the above for sure. So, so, so Matt, the 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 historic applications are much very much GDP growth related industries. Yes, you know, they, so they they are linked to industrial applications and they're GDP related. The excitement is around the lithium-ion battery industry, which is going to compound at quarter 25, 30%. And that's unprecedented. So when people say lithium is abundant, lithium is abundant. So is nickel, so are other things. But can you commercially extract it and can you produce the product that's needed? And it's one of the stumbling blocks in investors' you know, mentality looking at it is they don't they don't uh, look at the. They don't consider the nuance of what it is to produce a product that has sometimes ten parts per million of. You need impurities at less than ten parts per million of a product. It it really requires, you know, a specialty process, and that's where the margins are at, and that's the excitement. So if we, we go back now to to what you mentioned, so. The, you know, the, the lithium started out in the U.S. It was based on hard rock, so it was mostly spodumin-based material. You process that into um, into uh, lithium chemicals. Then in the 80s, uh, the brine opportunity arose in South America, and the U.S. pretty much shut down, and, and it went to, um, it went to uh, South America, and then... Back again, green bushes in Western Australia, you saw the rise of, of hard rock mining again. So from a brine perspective, the sun and the wind does a lot of the uh, processing for you. It upgrades the, the, the content, the lithium content in the brine, so without having to do anything. So from a carbon footprint perspective, brine is actually quite low. But you need, uh, I think, uh, I'm, I don't want to quote it, but... Um, you need an enormous amount of land footprint to have ponds as you, you know, pump it up and then move them from one to the other, increasing the grade. And the issue that's always uh, raised, and it's being raised now again in Chile, is 
what is the impact on the local, the sustainability and the local, and the impact on the local community and flora and fauna pumping brine out from under the surface. But um, typically a, a brine will be processed into lithium carbonate as it's, you can do chloride as well, but it's just, so from a, from a battery perspective, which is really where we focus in this conversation is you make a lithium carbonate, you can reprocess that into hydroxide, but it's an initial step and then a secondary step. The other way to make lithium is hard rock, spodium and concentrate. You dip, dig up lithium oxide. It's mostly in Oz, but there's other places, Brazil, et cetera. And you purify, you it, it increase the grade of that to a 6% spodium and concentrate. And you ship that. It's pretty much exclusively done in China where you need seven and a half to eight tons of spodium and concentrate to then put through a rotary kiln, sulfuric acid, et cetera, and produce you can produce carbonate, but it, that is the is the preferred route for lithium hydroxide. Okay, so that's some that's that's some of the terminology and also some of the history um, around this. Can you give me give us a sort of sense of the size of the current markets and projected for each of those? Sure. So the in, so the, the total lithium market is just over three hundred thousand tons. So if you assume an average of ten thousand dollars a ton. It's a three billion market. So you compare that to nickel, it's tiny. And this is the complexity of what we're dealing with. It was a very small industry. And now, of course, with, with batteries, you know, we're expecting the size of that market to grow like 10 times in the next 10 years. Obviously, you know, seeing 10 times potential growth or, or sort of from, from the demand side of things. Investors are going to get very excited about lithium, especially with such a small market. You know, three three billion dollar market um, is nothing. But if you if it suddenly becomes 30, 30 billion over a relatively short period of time, that gets people excited. It gets people investors specifically excited if they can pick the right company. So, you you touched upon a few things there: um, brines, pluses and minuses. Hard rock, long history, um, and, and you know, again, pluses and minuses. So where should people be looking? Should they be put off by brines or hard rock or even clays we've been talking about recently as well? So, Okay, so, so if, I, if, I, if I can simplify the lithium thesis down to one thing. So you can start from there and then ask the question. As I mentioned earlier, the the... Lithium applications for industrial uses have GDP-like growth. So there's nothing sort of sexy and exciting about that. They're good margin businesses, make no mistake, Albemarle, they do pharmaceutical, you know, et cetera. They make good margins, but there's limited growth. You must only invest in a company that is going to achieve battery quality and qualified material into the EV and re rechargeable battery supply chain. If, if the company that you back does not achieve that qualification, the margins that can be earned on, on supplying into the non-battery application and into the oversupply market are not there. They don't justify the investment case. So, so, so just as an example, if you look at Ganfin, which is the number two, they are currently trading on an EV to EBITDA multiple of 70. Because there is no, you know, the markets has been slightly oversupplied and tight. But 
they are able to literally take any material and turn it into battery quality material. And that skill and that ability has a huge value to it. It does. So and you have touched upon that earlier. You talked about uh, technology and or technologies um, to be able to create high-grade, um, you know, battery-grade materials. So companies that talk about that is one thing. Companies that are able to deliver that is a completely different thing, okay? Because the amount of presentations so, so I, I can, see... If I, can, if I can, stop, if I can sure. stop you there, there's even another qualification. So producing battery grade doesn't get you qualified. If you have the wrong impurities within your battery grade, such that it doesn't pass the battery supply chain qualification process, that material's then got to be sold into whatever market for whatever application. It still needs to be qualified and you still, and each cathode maker has different impurities they don't want. So it, it, that's why I said it's a rabbit hole. Once you go down this thing, you never come out. But, um, no, but you, you you're, you're be, simplifying it. For, I, I like this. It's really simplifying it for us because it helps us point towards the right companies. And we then, the, the difficult bit is, once, the, once we've identified companies that are saying the right things, how do we know if they've got the right battery grade materials? Uh, so here's an example. So in our estimates as RK Equity, I've run through the numbers. Because of the uh, what EVs uh, the ex-China market wants, they want high nickel uh, cathode. They want fast charging, long range, etc. That can only use... If your uh, cathode composition is more than uh, the sort of tipping points around 65% nickel, then you can only use lithium hydroxide in that cathode. You cannot use carbonate. It's to do with the sintering process when they do the, it, it can damage the crystal structure. So there are only really three qualified companies into the lithium hydroxide market outside of China. That's Albemarle, Ganfin, and Lavin. There are other companies that, that supply small amounts, but those three dominate it. So you, you have to, when somebody says, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, you've got to make sure that they're doing the right testing and, and the, you know, they're going about it in the right way because it's a very exclusive club that they're looking to join. And it's the reason why a lot of junior projects will partner with those three in order to get where they're going or look to pinch personnel from them in order to get the job done. Right. Okay. So if you're not one of those three, you need to partner. This, this is good because again, these are more, more well, big clues. Well, no, you can you can you can go it alone. So you know, Howard mentioned Piedmont. They are based in North Carolina, and of all the lithium hydroxide made, you know, Albemarle and Lavent reprocess carbonate in North Carolina. So there's a lot of processing skill in that location. But you are seeing again. We we are encouraged by new technologies like direct lithium extraction and clay, etc. But they still need to go through, you know, the process uh, and doing the pilot plants. And absolutely, because again, you know, it's one thing to do it at small scale; it's another to mine a much larger deposit that isn't homogenous. You know, you have different waste rock, you have different, uh, you know, ore body. How consistent is it so that when you scale up from a pilot plant producing 100 kilos to 20,000 tons, is everything going to go according to plan? And that is, you know, you know, this is mining really, I guess. But in lithium, it's even more important because the allowed impurities 
are the, the specification sheets are extremely stringent. They they are, and you know, as a small junior, you can't expect to have all the necessary prerequisite skill sets in house from exploration, development, building pilot plants, getting into some level of production, and being able to you know sell into the right market. You're saying so. Again, so for investors, always thinking from an investor's point of view, the opportunities are to get in early because the leverage is there or get in at the point when you think the company has got the necessary skill sets or partnerships, JVs or relationships to process properly. So again, how, what would you encourage people to be looking at in companies? So you, you, you would, if someone's going to be taken seriously, they're going to have a lot of, you know, chemical engineers and so on on the staff, less promoters and less geologists and what have you, if they're going to progress from being an exploration or development company into a genuine production company. Okay. Uh, but, um, yeah, so as I say, that, that to me would be a key thing to look at. And again, you've got to look at, at how rigorous the metallurgical test work is that people do. Um, and also look at, uh, because again, the qualification process, it starts with a few hundred grams, then goes to a few kilos, and then it goes to ton. It's, it's a real process, and you need to see how the guys progress along along that chain. Okay, so again, so I want to bring, bring it back to Clay's, Brian, Hard Rock. There's, diff, there's different types of um, costs to those things. Obviously, Brian's is traditionally viewed as being quite an inexpensive, low low ASIC, if you were, um, to to produce. Um, hard rock is seen as much more expensive than clays. I guess it's the great unknown at the moment. Um, if you were looking at these companies, how do you view them in terms of their different cost structures? Again, coming back to this pros and cons component. Okay, so now I'm going to throw another worm, go down another wormhole with you. So there is operating costs. And yes, brands uh, typically are the lowest cost producer for carbonate. And SQM, I think, is even under $3,000 a ton. But now there's royalties in Chile, as you know. So uh, does one look at um, the operating costs or does one look at what the ultimate cost is in order to deliver the final product? Because that's what's going to generate your EBITDA and your earnings. So there's again, if you, you know, if you ship into China, there are import duties and VAT, and then if you ship out again as a foreign company, there's VAT on top of your product leaving it. So there are cost curves and there are cost curves, and it's another added layer because if you just look at what operating costs are, and then you look at the financials that are released by companies, you wouldn't think they're the same people because you're missing out on all of this hidden layer of expenses that happen between operating and sale. So from a pure operating perspective, yes, in theory, uh, um, brand to carbonate is the lowest cost route to the point that I think it, it's, it's probably going to put uh, a lot of the, the non-integrated producers in China who take independent spodumin and convert that to carbonate, going to put them under pressure. Um, and in theory, a hard rock to hydroxide is the cheapest route. But again, it depends on where you, whether you're integrated or non-integrated, where you source it, and government royalties, taxes, and so on. Because again, Australia has a 5% royalty on spodumin, and you ship it out to China and so on. So we do a lot of work around what is the actual ultimate 
costs to produce the product because investors need to know that in order to determine how profitable a company will be, which I'd like to think is what matters. Okay, so apart from royalties, what are the other components, the other costs that are um, put onto a company? So obviously there's shipping, depending on where you're shipping it to, but there are, so um, Argentina has an export tax. Chile has a royalty on, on Albemarle and uh, on, on SQM for what they sell it to. As I said, then if you ship it into China, there is um, uh, import duty and VAT. And if you reprocess it and ship it out, there is another uh, export tax or VAT, if you will, that when you ship it out. So that's applicable to live and, and to Albemarle. Right. Okay. So we need to start, look, start looking at financial modeling before we actually make some decisions. Yeah, so it, it, it really does. Uh, if, if you want to, you know, again, it depends on where do you do your investing. So if you, if you like to take early exploration plays and run them to feasibility, these things don't matter. If you're actually looking at worrying about operating companies and what the margins are, then these things do matter. Yeah, I mean, so it's an interesting mix here for um, investors because most of them, you know, don't do a lot of homework here, and it doesn't really matter. And perhaps, um, you know, early early investing based on what the company says, the promotional. But I know you don't necessarily rate the promotional component to it, but it does have an effect. But it's not really going to move the dial when it comes to creating real values. You're saying you need to pick companies, development companies, with a real chance of getting into production with some real partners. Is that is that where the best leverages, the best value is in terms of, in terms of like, you know, because early stage stuff is risky by nature because they all say the same stuff. It's too early to actually have the data or the metrics to be able to judge them properly. So, you know, where are you advising people to look uh, it's a good one. I, you know, uh, I don't. We don't necessarily uh, um, promote specific companies, but we will certainly do the analysis to give the ins and outs of each one and the merits. And obviously, we represent companies that we believe can achieve what what need what's needed to be achieved. But just generically, um, generically, what's the best stage in terms of in terms of mitigating risk, but also leverage, you know, increasing your leverage. That depends on where the market's at, as you know, Matt. That's a you know that's a million dollar question. But where are the opportunities where you see the biggest returns happening? And this happens time and time again through every cycle. That's from early exploration to proving up a resource and feasibility. There's always a big uplift there. And then the second opportunity is after feasibility, around that orphan period where you get that next chance where they where they in the two-year construction period and, and there's no excitement around the hard work being done, but they're undervalued versus where they're headed to. Okay, so it's the same as every other commodity. You're saying there's no there's no sort of nuance difference for lithium. Um, it's it's not how it's played out now. But the other thing to mention is, uh, unlike copper or nickel or what have you, there's no LME contract on lithium, so there's no way to play the raw material. You need to play. You need, to, if you want to get exposure, you need to actually physically pick a company because you can't buy you can't buy it as a as a commodity. Okay, can I ask you a question? I want to come back to clays um, because it's relatively new to the market. I don't think it's really well understood, and I'm not sure companies that we've spoken to or, or, or others have demonstrated technically how they can solve this problem at an economic scale. So, is that 
I mean, wh- where are they? Is it relatively uh, nascent? Is it relatively young technology? Or do you think that people will be able to deliver clay projects at scale? That's a, that's a tough question. So the one project that is being funded, and I saw you had them on the show, which we know is Bacanora. And again, I think I, I, the jury is out, but one, one way of, of, giving, of maximizing the probability of achieving what you want to is having the right partner. And they've got Ganfin. And I can't sing the praises of Ganfin enough. These guys have taken high-concentrate brine from SQM and turned it into battery material. They take spodumen from anywhere. They seem to get everything right. And they are um, Bacanora's partners, and they're having a go at the Sonora project. So I would say if, you, if, you, if I've mentioned before that you need the due diligence of the chemical skills you know, previously, and that's in conventional projects, in, in clay projects, you absolutely need to back a team and management um, and look to make sure that they have the right skills. My, my preference on, on, uh, on the clays would be to see some type of tie like with a Ganfin, et cetera, that, that will maximize your probability of getting it done. Will it prove to be as economically viable as the feasibility studies say? You know, that uh, always remains to be seen. I've seen some feasibility studies already moving where the OPEX has jumped 50%. So, you know, it's, uh, again, the one, the one thing I would say that's possibly in its favor is I'd say it's a fairly homogenous deposit in terms of what you're mining is fairly consistent. So if you can get the process right, you can probably start working at efficiencies because you're not, I don't think there's as many curveballs. But it is unproven. There's a, you know, there's a reason it's, it's behind Brian and behind Hard Rock in being tested. Um, uh, and it's, it's worth, it's worth uh, being explored. It's worth being tested in the same way that I am quite partial to DLE, uh, to direct lithium extraction. But uh, I, I don't, have, I don't you know, believe it's going to revolutionize CapEx and OpEx, but it could produce the material that is back to the question of who is going to produce battery quality and qualified lithium into the supply chain is, is people that can produce a consistent product time and time again. Yeah, so I, I take your point about Gangfang, you know, and having them uh, on board as a partner for any company is very important. As you say, it in, in the case of Clays, it increases the chance of success. It doesn't guarantee it because even they, at this moment, have not demonstrated economic economically viable solution for clays that is to come look you've you know bacanora has run a pilot plant i think of about 600 tons a year or what have you again it's going from that to 17 and a half to 35 is are we going to have some you know is there a mystery problem you know in the mix or is it going to be simply just scaling it up because namaska was supposed to do the same on you know on its on its process but um I think you also can't uh, underestimate the benefit of someone like Ganfin with deep pockets and skills backing you so that if you do hit a few snags, it doesn't, it's not the end of the road for you. You can work your way through it. And I think that is, that is important is, uh, you know, all mining companies look for maximum leverage and maximum returns, but if they run into snags, is that the end of the road? And 
you being bought out in a fire sale or do you keep going? And, you know, Gangfin is a $10 billion market cap company. It's, it's real. No, I understand. What I'm, what I'm trying to get at always is protecting investors to, to walk in knowing what the risks are. And then you put that as part of your evaluation, your own personal evaluation as to whether or not that suits your strategy. So it's just important to go, the, so demystify the language used by, sorry, I'm not, this is not a back and forth conversation. This is generic conversation around what companies say and what the reality is are two different things because they've got to paint the best possible picture, you as an investor better not be walking into either a trap or a position where the company, despite its best endeavors, cannot solve a problem. With Gang Feng and their balance sheet helps in that particular case, not all companies have that. So I'm just, I'm just again, this, is, this whole exercise and this whole series is about helping people walk into investments with their eyes wide open. So, yeah, so th- th- thanks for talking about um, Clay's. It's, it, it's an interesting space. If, the, if they solve the problem, potentially very, very huge for you know, a handful of companies uh, there for sure. But, but again, you know, they, don't, they don't defy or have a separate set of economics that's special to them. They've still got to make money in the environment like everyone else. Um, and I think there is potential, the same with the others, but one must understand that the incumbent lithium majors have not chased that space. Take that for what you will. Well, so well, they had they, a choice they, and they hmm. passed on it. Yeah, but it comes back down to the technology. It's the, the uncertainty. You know, you've got to stick with what you know. And you know, they've, they've got a they've, one. It's a small market, so even the major players are not that major. Um, you know, capital is tight. Uh, the market is, is, as you say, it's GDP type growth so far. It's not that been that exciting, and the EV thematic has been a bit slow uh, to materialise. It's, it's ramping up, but it's still not there. And, you know, COVID, COVID hasn't really helped things either. So decision making, yeah, like you say, make of it what you will. But uh, I, I think I can move between the lines. Um, can we just, um, you, you did a commentary the other day on nickel, right? You were interviewed about nickel. This is all part of the EV thematic. You know, you're not just pure lithium, right? Um, and we've seen Tesla's quarterly uh, last week. We heard what uh, Elon Musk said and the impact of that for certain companies has been huge. Because I think it's been hard to get a Tesla away from the lithium story, you know, bang, the lithium, the lithium battery, lithium battery. But they've suddenly, just almost overnight, recognized nickel is uh, important to them. Um, what's, what was your take on his commentary with regards to nickel? So, yeah, I mean, look, if you, if you do the breakdown of a, of a high nickel cathode battery, the biggest expense of the entire um, of, of the high nickel uh, cell is is nickel. It's and then second is is lithium. So if he, uh, so, the way I see it is, if you look at Tesla, if he hits five hundred thousand sales this year, by our estimates, he is twenty five percent of the EV market. So for all the talk of Tesla killers and Tesla killers, he might have increased his share of EVs this year. And it it would appear that he has an ambition to continue to do that. So I think what he's realized is he is looking to expand Giga Nevada and Shanghai and start Berlin and put Austin, which is already under construction as well. 
And if you are going to uh, look to launch the semi, which could have anything up to 800 to 1,000 kilowatt hour battery in it, which is like 15 Model 3s all in one, uh, and the Cybertruck, all of these need high nickel cathode. And he said that because the semi, it's all about haulage weight, et cetera. He needs the best energy density and lastest weight on his battery packs. So I never thought he was going to look to launch all of those in one go. It would appear that he's looking to maintain a very high percentage of the EV market share. And he can if he launches it because whoever you speak to, I mean, I, it depends on taste, but the Cybertruck looks to have a lot of back orders waiting for it. So um, what is interesting, Matt, is when he did make that comment, he made it almost quite clear that he's not going to do the nickel mine. He's telling everyone else to get on with it. So he's, that's not, when he's spoken about getting into mining previously, it clearly didn't mean nickel because from the way I read that, he's not, he's not going to do it. I do think one possible elegant solution to him securing more nickel is to do physical streaming deals, which is effectively like prepaid offtake with fixed pricing. And, you know, Tesla is, let's assume it gets into the S&P 500. If you look at other companies in the S&P 500 with 250 to $300 billion market cap, they have funding rates of like half a percent term funding rate. So there is balance sheet arbitrage between the people who need the physical raw materials and junior miners who have to borrow at 12, 15%. So it's not just about, um, you don't necessarily have to uh, buy the company, but I think there are ways of structuring it which you can effectively help fund the development of raw materials, which I think is where we're gonna get to. So I think a physical streaming deal with a fixed price Guarantee to him might be an elegant solution where he helps everyone. But in terms of raw quantum numbers, he's about to send nickel and, and lithium hydroxide demand into the stratosphere if he is going to launch the semi, the cyber, have the wire this year and the three going. It's going to require an insane amount of materials. It's an insane amount of material, but he also gave a clue about the type of nickel he wants. He said, I, you know, you produce it, we'll, we'll give you a long-term contract, but... It needs to be efficiently mined and it needs to be clean. And there was this, you know, there's this sort of debate going on with regards to, you know, sulfide versus laterite, nickel, you know, dirty versus clean or clean, you know. And that yes. that's an interesting conversation. It's certainly for people like if, if Tesla's thinking that or big funds thinking that, should investors be thinking like that? Again, he's, he puts something out there, you know, for debate it would assume that it will favor high-grade nickel sulfides with what he's asking. Um, but in the end, you know, this is a tall order with nickel at $6 a pound to have all these other requests of how you mine it and where you source your energy and what have you. And I've seen your nickel expert on, he, he can discuss it. Is There's quite a lot of requests going into the back of this when prices are quite low. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, it is possible to uh, to do it. And let's be honest, if you look at the price of renewables these days, I think it's a natural progression that's going to happen. Um, and there's a lot of acidic, you know, waste rock if you if you do, you know, like leaching on, on laterites and so on. But um, uh, what we've seen, though, is in the same light is he did an offtake agreement with Glencore for the cobalt uh, and 
they they also they and BMW and others have um, uh, offtake agreements with Ganfin, which produces hydroxide in China, which is never going to have the same grid. So, is one going to have a is one going to allow for a lead time in order to get a progression towards a, a cleaner, you know, mining and energy sourcing of all of these raw materials? It, I think that that's fair. Um, and it's, it seems to be starting further downstream. So Northvolt is going almost, I think, is completely carbon neutral. And, you know, so that's cell. Uh, and then we can move up to cathode, I guess. BASF is now going to give you effectively almost a carbon certificate on every, project, every product that they make. But it's going to take a little longer as we go upstream into the chemical processing and mining. There's, you know, you need to give some grace period, I think, there. No doubt. No doubt. Well, look, um, Rodney, that's, uh, thank you very much for your time today. I mean, seriously, it's, you're extremely knowledgeable on the subject. And so you do live and breathe it seven days a week. So we were, and we, when we spoke a few weeks ago, it was obvious to me um, that you love, love this space. Um, and there's a lot going on. And the, and the nuance is really, really important. I think there's some real key learnings for people new to uh, lithium, just coming in for the first time. And it may be even people who haven't, really looked at lithium the right way before. So I appreciate your time today. And you're going to come back every sort of couple of weeks and and, and, and talk to us uh, and tell us what's going on in the world because it looks like it's sort of rapidly working its way to some, some kind of meaning, for sure. Excellent. Thanks very much for having me on, Matt. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.